esoteric SETI group of Freemason whose purpose is of sharing knowledge of mystery schools and debunking misconceptions about Freemasonry. You're here with Mike and Ron. Thanks for tuning in. Any of the opinions expressed on Keepers of the Word do not reflect the opinions of other organizations or Masonic lodges. Today's topic. In the past, we were asked to cover an episode on ghosts and paranormal energies and are happy to say that we have delivered as promised. Today we have joining us are two men who have extensive knowledge in the paranormal. We have author of Haunted by History, Craig Owen, with us today to talk about his book and experiences with the paranormal. We also have Paul Griffith, who is also a ghost hunter and a Reiki master. Um, let's start off with Paul. Let's talk about Reiki. Please, uh, I, I, I don't know nothing about it. Right, right. I'm asking. A lot of people don't. Well, the word Reiki itself, uh, Rei is, uh, it can mean, it, there's no direct translation from Japanese to English, so it's uh, commonly known as Rei is spiritual or universal. Um, spiritual universal and Ki is uh, known as energy, as you mm. probably have heard that in martial arts and stuff. So, uh, so Reiki is, the, is a Japanese, uh, uh, it's a healing technique, Japanese healing technique to help uh, work stress out of the body. Uh, create re- relaxation, balance the chakras. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's you know, it's it's been around a long time. It's not a new age uh, healing art. Um, it's been around since the early 1900s. Um, there, there were uh, through some research, I found that uh, Reiki actually started probably around 1914. There was an instructor prior to the. Uh, the the instructor that we carry the lineage from mm. and uh so the instructor that that i carry the lineage under his name was uh, mikawa sui and uh or uh, sui sensei so uh i'll try to give a brief history about him because he kind of gets long but uh so mikawa sui was a uh, uh a japanese man in japan i think uh close to i don't know what exact city i want to say uh was in kyoto but anyway, he uh, in his early years he did, he traveled to China and to Europe, and he studied medicine. He studied, uh, um, see, medicine and psychology, religion, and I think in around 1922, he was looking for a higher purpose in life. So he came, he went seeking out a, a Zen master, and so the Zen master um, told him that he needed to uh, to go to this uh, sacred mountain. Uh, in Japan, and go up there and, and fast for I don't know if it was a month. It was it was it was a big. It was a, a huge span of days. So anyway, he went to this this uh, I think it's called uh, Kurama Yama. I think is the name of the mountain. So he went to this mountain and he did this fasting, and uh, allegedly that's where he found his enlightenment and uh, re- uh, his style of Reiki. So. Um, he then went on to uh, to bring it back. He came back with this this new enlightenment and this new way of healing spiritually. And um, yeah, he just went on. He went on to, to share that with people in Japan. You know, during there was a huge earthquake that that went down there. I forget what year it was, but uh, there was a lot of people that were injured. And uh, he started taking people in and performing uh, this energy healing on on them. And uh, people were very drawn to that. You know, they didn't really quite understand how he was doing it, but uh, that gives a little bit of history of, of Makawa Sui and, and where it started in, in 1922. Wow. 
So from your, can you talk about your experience about when you started in your lineage of Reiki and, and like the teachings that you were told about it and the concepts and practices and anything that you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah, when I that? got into Reiki, um, I was actually led uh, to, who, who's now a long time, for about 10 years, she's been my mentor a long time, a uh, friend, and uh, at the time I was, uh, I was in the paranormal, I had started in the paranormal, and I came, came across someone who was a medium, and at the time I didn't know quite how I felt about, you know, the whole medium and the whole psychic thing, but uh, I had about three different mediums tell me the same thing, they said, uh, do you know you're sensitive? I said, I really don't know what that means. And uh, so they, they said, well, you know, uh, they started describing the different, you know, traits of a, of a medium or an empath. I mean, not a medium, a sensitive or an empath. And I said, wow, and that kind of lines up. I started reflecting back on life as a kid. And uh, they said, yeah. Um, so they started naming things. And I said, yeah, yeah. And I feel that. I go through that, you know, ups and downs. Don't know why. So basically, sensitives are people that, that uh, we're like magnets. We absorb everything around us, energy, which is people's emotions, uh, the way people feel. They can be mad, be sad, not feel very well. So we pick those things up. Sensitives tend not to want to be around big crowds of people because they get very worn out. So uh, I said, okay, that's, that's cool. So what do I do with it, you know? <laughs> and so he says, well, he goes, uh, you know, people that are sensitive typically get into uh, healing arts or practices. I said, oh, cool. Like what? Like crystals? <laughs> so at this time, he just he happened to mention uh, Reiki. And I said, well, what's that? And so he described to me what it was. And he was also interested in, in learning it. So we ended up taking a class together. Uh, it was Western Reiki 1. And uh, Western Reiki 1 differs from traditional Japanese Reiki in the sense that Western Reiki, you actually don't lay your hands on the client. You actually keep them about two or three inches away as you're scanning for blockages or issues in the meridians or the chakras and then you know you help clear them and uh, in traditional Japanese Reiki you actually you actually lay your hands on the client uh, here in the west I typically like to use the western because a lot of people don't want their you know your hands on them and if you're dealing with women so uh, anyway I, I, I continued my journey I, I took the Reiki one class and I felt like it was a void in my life it answered so many questions uh, of things that you know, I grew up not really understanding, and it kind of, kind of set my purpose, my purpose in life, and what I wanted to do, and that was uh, to give back to people with this new healing art that I, you know, came across, um, is my way of giving back. So for the past ten years, that's what I've been doing. I've been a practitioner. Um, I attained the level of Reiki master. Um, you know, these are all titles, but each title, you're learning new tools. Um, so uh, I ended up, you know, deciding to do that. You know, I decided to go on and, and just help people. Uh, that's cool, man. Um, in any of your in, in any of your instances of performing Reiki, have you come across any any issues or things that that just stood out to you that would be of the paranormal or something that um, wouldn't be natural? Uh, a couple of times, and I typically, like I was telling Ron, I typically don't really mix uh, discussions about paranormal and, and Reiki because um, they're two th different things. Yeah, well, yeah. things can happen though. Things can happen. There's uh, 
there was a few uh, sessions that I did do where I did have the receiver tell me that during the session they felt like pushing me away from them. And at that time, I was probably about five years into Reiki, and I was out of state, in fact. And uh, so when they shared this with me, I was a little bit, you know, obviously I was taken back. I was like, huh? You know? You felt wet? And uh, they go, yeah, I don't know what it was. You know, I was feeling really good, and I was sitting there like this meditative state, and I just had this urge to just push you away from me. I didn't want you to do it anymore. So I was like, I need to seek some guidance. <laughs> so I reached out to my Reiki master, and I said, hey, you know, it's the first time I've experienced this, but I was giving Reiki to a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, he's having, he was having a lot of activity in his house at the time as well. So the first thing she tells me, she says, it's probably an attachment, a spirit attachment. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> she says, yeah, it's, it's common. She says it's common and it's probably going it, to, it's becoming more and more common. Um, there's a lot more people that are living in places that don't, that don't know, it's, that are active, that have, you know, spirits or ghosts in them and, she goes, it, sometimes people, when they're going through issues, they're going under a lot, you know, they're under a lot of stress in life or something, they tend to be, become more vulnerable uh, to these attachments. So I didn't want to get too, in, too into depth of that. I said, well, that's, that's kind of out of the realm. I, I said, okay, so what do we do, you know? So that was a whole other discussion that we got into later as I got into the advanced uh, uh, part of breaking. But uh, it's not something that is practiced uh, and it has to do with spirit attachments and all, but what, what tends to happen is that obviously, if there's a spirit attachment uh, and you're trying to heal them and trying to help them, it doesn't want you to it's do counterproductive. that. Counterproductive. Yeah, so it's it kind of takes on that action of trying to get you away. Now, you know? and during the when you're with the client, uh, is there certain things that you're feeling uh, when you're when you're healing when you're healing that yeah. client? Yeah, yeah. So basically, with a Reiki session, basically what happens is um, disconnecting from the paranormal because. Uh, in a Reiki session, basically what happens is I'll take a, uh, a client and we use massage tables so they can lay out on a massage table or they can sit in a chair and basically we do what's called a scan. So we'll scan the body and through the scan, our hands tend to, to feel sensations, heat sensations or tingling, which would tell us that there's issues in those parts of the body, those parts of the chakras, the meridians. And, uh, I make mental note as I do the scan and, uh, so once I do the scan, I then go back to those areas and I start to uh, administer Reiki. And I do it until I feel their inner, that those energy blockages dissipate. I can actually feel the tingling or the heat sensations in these parts of their body kind of go away. So depending on the issues of, the, of what they have, um, it could take several sessions. You know, um, Like I tell most people, and what's known is that the, the physical blockages that happen in our bodies through day-to-day stress emotional things that we go through is all in the emotional state so all that breaks down into your physical stomach aches migraines aches um plays out some way yeah so that your body is where it it takes place and that's where the blockages occur it's kind of like plumbing so once these blockages occur your body can't do what it naturally does and that's heal itself so um that's you know reiki acupuncture all these these different eastern modalities that's what a lot of them are designed to do is to help clear these these areas of your body so your body can do what it's supposed to do and so in reiki that's pretty much what the uh the goal is hmm. wow that's that's interesting you have any more questions for him um i don't i can personally tell you that i have had some sessions from paul um on a couple of retreats that i went on and wanted to be able to center myself and just kind of um 
meditate and relax and and I can definitely say that the uh, the times that you provided me with Reiki was beneficial for me I, I noticed it so it was definitely something that helped get me into the state of mind that I needed to be in so no, that's good to hear yep. I remember our first session actually um, we were both in Texas I remember you asked me hey man I want to get back can you try that you know and I remember the first scan I did on you. I didn't. I didn't know what IBS was. Mm. I just remember doing a scan on your. Where I was doing distant Reiki, which you can do it from a distance, and that's you know a whole other story. But uh, at the higher levels of Reiki, you can actually take a silhouette. We take a silhouette of a sketch of a body, and basically we could that will represent the person no matter where they're at. So we can make this connection with them, and that's what I did with Ron. So I did this body, this full body scan, and I remember picking up some blockages in his lower abdomen area. And so I did share that with him. I didn't know what it was, but I told him that, you know, you have a blockage there. And so I went ahead and, you know, administered Reiki after I did the scan. And uh, so I asked him, I said, hey, man, do you have any issues in your lower abdomen? And he came back and said, oh, I have IBS. And I said, what is that? And so, you know, he explained to me what it was. And so, you know, there's a, there's a part of it in Reiki, I think, as it, not every person has to go from level one to master some people take level one just to because they're curious and just they want to feel it yourself yeah they want to they're just curious they want to know what reiki is and to give self reiki to themselves every day and then people that uh, really want to pursue it you know they'll go to the next level and masters typically get into teaching and at master's levels you can actually attune other people which uh-huh. is like transferring energy to others uh opening them up so they can provide reiki treatment and practice as well so uh yeah that was that was our first uh our first encounter with Reiki. Um, That's cool, man. Yeah. Now let's cross over into the paranormal side with Craig haunted by history. Volume one. Yes. Let's get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you want to know? I want to know what inspired it. What, what started you with this path? Uh, well, there were at least five or six stepping stones or, uh, I always kind of say that maybe, uh, I didn't choose the paranormal as a subject you. or it chose me <laughs> and it was, it, but it was over the course of, you know, almost, uh, over 40 years of just a handful of things that just had me thinking hmm. the first, um, the first thing that happened was probably when I was about six and it wasn't a paranormal experience at all, but it, what, what it was is, uh, I was, uh, living in Mississippi. I was living in Columbus, Mississippi. My dad at the time was at the Air Force Base there. And we, my parents had made friends with this family named the Snows who owned a antebellum home, pre-Civil War home called Waverly in West Point, which wasn't too terribly far away. And the Snows had a son named Gage who was about a year or two younger than me. And so this was great because we would have play dates. I was going to this three-story mansion uh, almost every two, three weeks, and sometimes I'd have sleepovers. But during that time, I found out that there was supposed to be a little girl ghost that, that haunted the place. That was about my age at the time. She was supposed to be about six or seven years old, and she supposedly stood on the stairs outside one of the, the second-floor bedrooms and would call out, Mommy. You know, and oh. at first, <laughs> at first, Mrs. Snow thought it was her youngest son, Gage, my friend, and so she would, she would, you know, Gage, are you okay? Are you hurt? You know, and and there'd be nothing. 
Um, then they start noticing little indentations on the bed just inside, just by the stairs where this little girl had been seen. And Mr. Snow at the time didn't believe in ghosts at all, but somehow or another this was happening so regularly. At one point, she said, you're staying home from work and you're coming with me. And so as the story goes, and I believe it because the Snows were not keen on just making things up, they kept the story really quiet up until 1972 when finally some author published it. But this happened prior to then. But uh, Mr. and Mrs. Snow went up into that bedroom where the indentations were, and they just sat there and just kind of talked among themselves. And the bed was very flat. It was, it was crisp. But they both witnessed an indentation that looked like that of a child suddenly depressed on the mattress. Oh, <laughs> and it stayed there for over like 30 minutes or so. While they were hanging out there. Right. And so they're like, oh, did you see that? This is before, you know, cell phones and video cameras. So it was just word eyes mouth. and yes. word of mouth. But afterwards, suddenly the indentation went away and the skirt of the bed, because it was an antique bed, uh, moved as if like someone had climbed up. out of the bed and, and right. moved away. That made Mr. Snow a believer. Now... When I heard this, you would think I'd be scared, but no. You wanted to see the ghost. Show me. So, and and, and I, I must have driven them crazy, you know, asking, have you seen the ghost lately? Have you seen the ghost lately? And I had heard rumor that one of the parlors, the downstairs, they only had one parlor, but it was a downstairs parlor where they used to lay out the dead before burial. Um, one of the corners in the heat of summer was ice cold. So I was constantly going to all the corners, you know, and checking them out and asking Mr. <laughs> Snow, does this feel a little cooler <laughs> to you? Um, I, I did s- sleep over a couple of times. I don't recall ever meeting the ghost. Darn it. You know, I wanted to. But I, I did learn I, two things from the Snows. And one is not to be afraid of ghosts. And second, don't break any antique furniture. Be scared more of that than, than of anything supernatural. So that was the first step. But that was a perfect mold melding together of history and the paranormal. And, and I wasn't one of those people that had paranormal experiences a whole heck of a lot. In fact, when the first real one hit, I was 20 years old and living in a 1970s fully furnished efficiency in Odessa, Texas, in, in West Texas. Yeah. Uh, you, you, wouldn't think, you would think that would be the last place for a haunting, right? Well, that's what I thought when I moved in. And I only lived there a year, but over the course of the year, a lot of different things happened in that room. And, and uh, I would just dismiss it as, you know, I was too tired or overactive imagination. I, I, rash, I literally would rationalize it out. But there were, uh, the first thing that happened, and it happened almost immediately after I moved in, is I was 20 years old. So I had built this life size dummy of Ronald Reagan. This was during the Reagan years. And I just had him there sitting in a cor- corner. And I had this little mouse <laughs> stuffed in, in the pocket peeking out. 
And I was working late at night at a television station at the time as a videotape operator. So, and then going to school, college, you know, in the morning. So I, I was tired an awful lot of the time. Yeah. So, but when I would come home from work about six, seven in the morning, that mouse would be on the floor, but it wouldn't be just at the floor at the feet of this dummy. It would be like about four or five feet away. <laughs> you get thrown out of right. the pocket. <laughs> and I, you know, the first couple of times I didn't think any of it. I thought maybe the neighbors below were blaring their, blasting their music real loud and the, you know, it was just, everything's vibrating. So I would just put it back. But then when it started happening uh, on the fourth or fifth day, um, I started getting suspicious. I poke it real deep in the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, next morning it's on the floor again. And then finally when I had a day off, what I did is I did my own little paranormal experiment, 1986 style or 87 style. And that's where I, I placed it in the pocket and I got this yardstick. And all I did was try to tap it to see how much force it would take to dislodge that mouse from the, from the pocket. And I mean, I had to whack it really hard and it never really could dislodge it, it very well. But then the second part, so I, I kind of gave up on that and said, well, that's, I don't think a vibrating stereo and, and blaring heavy metal music from down below is going to do this. So the next step is, you know, how does it get from here to about three, four feet away? And when I would drop the mouse, I mean, it just went plop right at the feet. It didn't bounce, didn't roll, didn't do anything. So after about 15, 20 minutes, I did get it once to kind of go three, four feet. But, I mean, it was like this summer I spin and force. I mean, <laughs> it was unnatural. Not, not a mouse that would just drop. It had to, you know, you had to put a certain spin on it a certain way and it had to land on its certain ear in order to, to roll. So I kind of gave up on it. And when you know it, that day after I did the experiment, it never happened again. For the rest of the year that I lived there, that mouse stayed in position. Then the next thing that happened was like three, four months later, it was a tapping on the shoulder while I was standing at the kitchen area. I'm alone in my place, yet it's so real to me that I, I literally turned around and then go, what are you doing? There's, there's no one here. You know, why am I, why am I, uh, why did I even think that to turn around? And so I dismissed that as, you know, my overactive imagination. I go, oh, i got to go to bed. I'm tired. And uh, then around the summer, there was this blast of hot air that hit me as I was trying to make the bed. I, I really, I think of it every time I make the bed. So I don't make the beds too much anymore. But, <laughs> but it spooked me so badly because I could hear the sound as well as feel the hot breath. And then the last thing that happened, and you'd think that this would be obvious enough, but I was getting ready for school one morning, and I was sitting there putting on my shoes, and the radio dial changed uh, about a quarter of a turn to another station. And that, that bugged me. Uh, I did immediately grab my books, leave the door, made some kind of sarcastic remark to whatever might be there to do the dishes while I'm gone. And I stayed at my grandparents' house until like 10 o'clock. Wouldn't tell them what's going on. And they go, well, Craig, don't you think you ought to go home yet? Do you think you got to go home? I go, yeah, yeah. So I kind of opened the door. The dishes were still a mess. And, uh, and I forgot all about it. I moved out. But I did meet the guy that moved in right after me. 
and the first thing out of his mouth was, is this place haunted? And <laughs> my answer was no, because I had just kind of written everything off as me. Then he started talking about the tapping on the shoulder while standing in the kitchen area and the, bur- the, the burst of hot air on the back of his neck while he was trying to make the bed. <sighs> and I went, oh, man, that happened to me, too. And I'm like, maybe going, it was. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me tell you about the mouse. You know, so I told him about the mouse and I told him about the radio station dial. He told me, he said, if this doesn't stop, I'm moving out. <laughs> And so I went, well, you know, I lived there a year. It wasn't that bad. Most days, nothing happened at all. So I thought I'd check on him in like a month, two months. That dude had already moved out. (laughs) No one was staying in that place, and they turned it into a storage unit, you know. And, um, And I don't think it's ever been rented out before. Now, the only thing I had heard about the place, um, was that it used to be a rec room. It used to be a pool room, you know, in the 70s. So, you know, Odessa's a rough town, and this was West Odessa, which is rougher than some, East Odessa. Some you know? bully's energy was still there. It could be, could be. <laughs> but that, yeah. was, that was one. That was the second one. The third one, um, oh, you know, it happened. I was working at Warner Brothers, and um, I was a script PA. And this was in 1999. And I had been on uh, several shows that used the oldest, the very first 1929 built uh, soundstage on the Warner Brothers lot. It's literally right across the street from Clint Eastwood's bungalow. And uh, in what I call the Bel Air part of Warner Brothers. And uh, so, you know, one night, it wasn't even late. Uh, I got the call to come in, make scripts, and that's what I did. I would spend about two, three hours making scripts, and I'd go all over the lot, uh, dropping off the scripts for the next day's rehearsal slash shoot, and then I'd spend the rest of the night dropping them off at people's houses, and then I get to go home. So it was an unsupervised job, and if you're good, you're always in demand. So I was doing this one show. It was a terrible series, not worth mentioning. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't even last one season. But uh, I was at that soundstage, and I got the call, and it's not the sun hadn't even set yet. And I go into this soundstage, and as I'm going up these stairs to drop off a bundle of scripts and the wardrobe and hair and makeup, I, I become aware of this female talking reciting something somewhere down below in the stage area and I thought that is weird so uh I decide well if is it a radio is it a walkie-talkie is it you know uh, did someone leave a tv on somewhere on there well because I had worked at a television station I knew that every 10 to 12 uh, 12 minutes or so there has to be a station break, you know, no pregnant pauses. There's going to be some kind of music interlude somewhere. So I decide I'm going to sit here. I'm going to stand here upstairs and I'm just going to listen. I had some time to kill. So I just listened. I couldn't make out what was being recited. I mean, I could make out consonants and I can make out vowels, but it was just gibberish, you know, and I never could quite pinpoint where that sound was. Well, 10 minutes turned into 12 minutes turned into 20 minutes, turned into 25 minutes, and this woman's still talking. And, but it, there's a lot of pregnant pauses, and it seemed like it'd quiet down, and then maybe 10, 8 seconds would pass, and then it'd start up again. 
And so finally, I, I, you know, I said, well, you know, I do have to get back to work. <laughs> I can't just stay up there all night listening to this, this woman speaking. And so I uh, decided I would sneak down the steps as softly as I could. I still had one big bundle left to drop in the middle of the stage where this voice was. And I'd already made up my mind that uh, I would do a run-through, walk-through through the whole place before I left anyway, just in case, even though I'd already ruled out radio and, and television and all that. So uh, there is one thing I should point out, though, is that the overhead lights that the work lights that I would flip on in this dark stage as I entered, um, they usually will flicker, grow dim, and then grow brighter. That night was the only night where the lights never fully went on, and it was constantly strobing and flickering overhead. Mm-hmm. So it had this kind of Steve, Steven Spielberg poltergeist <laughs> film thing going on. Gotcha. And so, yeah, it wasn't helping anything. Let's let's put it that way. You've got a woman in there reciting something somewhere on the stage, and you've got these lights going nuts, you know. And I'm just standing uh, in this old part of the soundstage looking down at the stage. So I start sneaking down these stairs. And I'm like halfway, still here. Three quarters, I still hear her. I get down to that bottom step. She's quiet. There's no more voice. So I went ahead and went on the stage, flickering lights and everything, dropped off the scripts. I will say that there was a great urge to run. There was something very heavy <laughs> in that stage area. And I'm not a guy that gets spooked much, but I definitely, my spidey sense was like <clears throat> saying, get out, get out of there, get out of there. And I was stubborn enough to say, no, I'm still going to do a walkthrough and look for a television or a radio or someone hiding in the wings trying to pull a prank on me, right. something. So I went through, didn't find anything. Now, here's the catch. As I'm walking, and I have a long way to walk to the front door where I came in, I became aware of women's heels walking behind me about 20, 25 feet. Followed by, and this was accompanied by the sound of, like, dress fabric, uh, like someone Dragging on dress, the stage. As well as the, the clap, clap, clap. And um, I, I noticed it, and I thought, aha, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn around real quick and catch whoever it is i'm still there's still a part of me that's thinking someone's pulling a a prank on me so you know i suddenly stop and do like a wider gunslinger turnaround you know (laughs) (laughs) exactly no one's there but what's weird is that the footsteps didn't they weren't walking in sync with mine but they didn't stop when i stopped either it was like a a flutter or a stutter step and then it stopped and so suddenly I'm like very quiet and I'm like going, huh, that's interesting. It didn't, it wasn't in sync with me stopping. So I turned around and started walking again and there were no footsteps for about four or five of my footsteps. And then it started up again. So it let me walk a little and then it resumed. Hmm. This time uh, it was getting closer. It was about 10 feet. It sounded like behind me and by this time I had gone into the wide open space of the soundstage so there was no nothing for anyone to hide behind so I felt like if someone's pulling a prank on me I have them dead to rights now dead to rights there's no way they're going to do that so I do my gunslinger turn around nothing and once again 
the footsteps stopped, but not at the same time as me. It was like a little stutter step, like one extra step, you know. And that that did it. So I walked very fast to the front door. <laughs> And I went out, and I was, like, having a cigarette outside my golf cart, you know, for about 10, 15 minutes, going, what was that? What was that? And uh, there is a punchline to this story, um, a couple of punchlines. Uh, no one ever came out of that stage. The next day, I tried to tell my supervisor, you know, what happened, or I would even ask security, did you ever hear any stories about the soundstage? No one would believe me, and here's why. That incident happened on Halloween in 1999, and because it happened on Halloween, no one believed my story <laughs> whatsoever. So the lesson I learned, because I knew what I heard, and all I had was a pager, uh, so I was going to carry a, a recorder with me from now on. If I start going to these places that are old and whatnot, and... Um, what was interesting is it took about 17 years for me to validate this. Uh, but when my book came out, I was uh, visiting a store, and one of the people that walked in the store knew who I was, and he was a security guard at Warner Brothers. And so I said, you're with Warner Brothers. I said, well, I've got a story to tell you. So I started telling him the story, and before I could even finish, he said, that sounds stage four, isn't it? And I went, yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're not alone. Other people have heard a woman, you know, and some have even seen her on that stage. And supposedly there, he told me that there was a male ghost that had also been seen now or heard. And I've never seen or heard the male, but I'd certainly heard the female. So right. I was like, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Finally, someone corroborated what uh what i had experienced there so that was one stepping stone then uh, we'll get to the last what started the book initially it's it's fairly quick but uh i decided i was going to do a photo shoot in a 1920s themed photo shoot and i needed a place that had good bones good architectural bones to do this in so i thought the best place to do that uh, would would be a hotel that had a photography policy in place that would allow me to do this. So I started looking at all these different hotels in Southern California, and I decided on the Mission Inn in Riverside because it had a little bit of everything. Yeah, it was beautiful. Gothic, it was Spanish colonial. It's it's it it's got a little bit of of Japanese style. It, it, I mean, you know, you you can do any kind of fantasy thing to some degree there. So I chose it. But in looking at all of these hotels, they all were supposedly haunted. And I thought, well, just in case, I'm going, I'm taking my recorders, you know, with me this time. But I wasn't there to ghost hunt. I was just there to shoot. And I'd hired one model, and I had a small little bankroll saved up. So I rented a uh, really expensive suite on the top floor and... Uh, that's where I was going to stay, but that's also where we were going to shoot, and the model had a room directly below mine. And so we were going to stay there about three, four days, and this was during the recession, so the Great Recession. So this was 2009 in August in Riverside. Mm -hmm. No one was at the Mission Inn. We <laughs> almost had the whole hotel to right. ourselves. And what ended up happening... Um, 
when we checked in, nothing really happened the first night. We shot till about four or five in the morning. I was exhausted. Uh, she went down to her room, and I just crashed, clothing and all, on the bed. Next morning, I I uh, go run an errand to the bank. It's about twelve o'clock noon, a little after that, and it was already one hundred and ten degrees. I remember that it was baking hot. So I go into the room the model's still asleep downstairs i'm not going to disturb her but when i opened the door to my suite i thought i heard someone moving toiletry items around in the in the bathroom so i thought it was housekeeping so i called out hello i'm here no no sound so i went into the bathroom no one's there nothing looked like it had been disturbed so i thought ah it's me i'm crazy from the heat Always rationalizing. Right. That seemed to be my <laughs> modus operandi. Everything but ghosts, you know. So um, I get on my computer and I'm starting to uh, just send emails out. And the suite that I had taken was 417. It was it's called the Carrie Jacobs Bond Suite, and it it's on two levels. The the main level has the den and the bed, but there's these little weird stairs that go up to a loft that is a very narrow space, but it overlooks the the bed. And it was in that loft area that the noises started breaking out again. And the first uh, sound sounded like, like metal coins dropping one by one on a wooden desk of some sort. Okay. So I was uh, trying to ignore it and continued sending my emails i wasn't ready to declare it haunted yet you know i thought that's weird hmm, i wonder if what that could be da, 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 da. still typing then i heard the clack clacking of women's heels again and only this time it sounded like it was walking across that upstairs landing and heading to the stairs right behind me that's when that's when it was like aha no there's something here so i i, I typed in i think i've got a ghost Got to investigate, more later, send. Grabbed my recorders. I went up to the second floor, and I made sure everything was quiet. I made sure no one was around, and the only the air conditioner was going. And I, I spent 10 minutes for the very first time in my life actually doing an EVP session, which is uh, electronic voice phenomena or ghost voices, voices that you don't hear with your ears, but somehow or another the frequencies can sometimes be picked up on a small recorder. I had a good, I had a good quality recorder. It wasn't one of the cheap ones. And, uh, and I spent the next 10 minutes really listening and trying to see if I could hear anything with my own ears. Never heard anything. But when I played back that recorder, there was a female voice on it. Hmm. And that... About I, I started to lose interest in the photo shoot and started getting much more interested in the ghosts and what was going on. Uh, eventually, I was able to make out what some of it was saying. And literally, when I uh, had asked, do you want to come closer to me so we could talk, the female voice said, sure, I would love that. And then she said something I can't hear. And then she said, I want to go home. I didn't know that until I had gotten home and could hear it on, on quality speakers, what the voice said. It was very faint. But two nights later, on my last night at the Mission Inn and the photo shoot, that one changed. That was the biggest. I had seen my first apparition. And I had switched from one suite to another. 
And I was in the Alhambra Mirador suite, which was this huge suite. Uh, if you've ever been to the Mission Inn, you, you, you'll know what it is. Because if you look up, there's this little balcony in this building. And people, you can just look right down into the middle of the courtyard. That's like one of the most nicest suites there. But for whatever reason, I hated it. I mean, there was just some really heavy going on there. Yeah. Sure enough, at midnight, I uh, got a call, phone call. I excused myself. I went, uh, took the phone call, came back in. And as I was coming in, something had caught my eye in this open mouth tunnel to, the, to my left. So I'm, I'm looking and I'm trying to figure out what it is that caught my eye. And I wasn't seeing anything that to me looked like a ghost or something that I, I you know, was, it didn't look like anything out of the Ghostbusters movie or anything, you know. But there was this weird shadow that looked like it was kind of leaning over around a corner, kind of looking at me. But it wasn't clearly defined as a human. It looked human-like, but it was kind of blotchy, almost like it's wearing a robe of some kind or some okay. kind of friar's habit with the hood. And uh, just as I was beginning to look at that and go, I wonder what's casting the light on that shadow, it suddenly zipped around the corner right in front of me. And, <laughs> and I was a deer in headlights. I, you know, finally a voice said, dummy, go look, you know, go look around the corner. So I walked over and I looked and it was just this real short hallway that went to two doors one door I later found out through research was the most haunted suite at the Mission Inn. And the other went to another door that was going to be to the bedroom that I was going to be sleeping in later that night. So I, uh, I walked in to the suite literally looking like I had seen a ghost. And, and there were other smaller things that happened, but that was the big thing. And finally, about 4, 4.30 in the morning, I'm so exhausted. It's like ghost or no ghost. I think I could sleep now. But once I woke up and checked out, I went home and I slept with the light on for the next 10 days in my house. <laughs> because I, it was a what was called a shadow figure. And I did not believe in them at all at the time. In fact, if you were to have met me in 2009 and said, oh, what do you think of shadow figures? I would have given you this long tirade about how... It doesn't exist that, you know, people that see shadows in the dark, come on, give me a break. You know, it's just someone in the other end of the room. Well, guess what? I saw one and I had to completely reevaluate so, everything. So your history going from when you were younger all the way until that moment yeah. really inspired Haunted by History. Which is a mixture of history and the paranormal because, see, I, I've reached the conclusion and it, there's something in the past. That's what these hauntings are. It's, a, it's either an energy from the past, an emotion from the past, or, you know, it's maybe the soul of someone. That, of course, that, that's energy. energy. That's all energy. energy. It's all energy. Yeah. As well as, as emotion is energy, too. It's something from the past that is in the present. It's coexisting in the present. So there's a lot of stories out there. You know, the first thing that I wanted to know about the Carrie Jacobs Bond Suite is why did I get a woman's voice in that room? And when I did the research, I finally I found out what the purpose of that room was when it opened in 1929. It was a woman's uh, recreation room. So it probably wasn't even a guest room until the 80s. 
so, well, that, that makes sense now. I, I caught a woman's voice in that room. And um, I started looking at a lot of these different stories, and you, you will hear about a certain place, like they'll say, oh, a prostitute died, you know, committed suicide, or, right. um, and, and it was murdered, or a murder took place in 1947 or, or in the 40s. Well, I wanted to know if that's true. So unlike a lot of paranormal books, what I did is I actually uh, really went in depth into the, the histories. And I, I found that not only historians had made mistakes through the years on the history, but also try, uh, a lot of the paranormal stuff didn't make any sense. The, there were like Greek myths sort hmm. of to try so to this explain. is how you were separating the, the real from the fake exactly okay. i'm not necessarily saying these places aren't haunted but certain stories don't backstories up. don't match up it's like people are trying to pin a personality to a ghost so they come up with this backstory it could be a psychic coming up with it it could be just a storyteller it could be a paranormal investigator that's just trying to drum up business you know on their ghost tours or but, whatnot but the stories didn't match up or didn't the, the have stories, actual history the stories didn't match up historically at all okay. and some of them are really uh are, are more convoluted than others so um it was quite a shock so that's why i decided well i'm going to be kind of taking on some sacred cows with this book <clears throat> so i better footnote everything but one of the things that I did also is I wanted to see if these places were haunted myself firsthand. It's it's one thing to know the history. It's another thing to know, figure out when the ghost stories started, who started them, what year, and how did they change over the years. But I went back and I would rent all of the haunted rooms and then I would bring models in and stage them in various vintage attire in the rooms. And sometimes we would recreate some of these legends or sometimes we'd recreate a historical event that literally took place in that area if not in that room and we'd see whether or not something unusual happened during the shoot and in some cases things did and uh and and, and most of the time however i would say that a lot of the stuff we caught uh was right after the shoot it's like we would shoot for about five six hours in a haunted room then we'd all leave and just leave recorders and that's like everything and then and that's you when use? you'd get voices what did you guys use just record evp recorders and anything else that you anything else you would leave just behind? usually regular digital recorders i have about three different types yeah. i have, an, uh, I have a, a tascam four track recorder which i have mic set up on it, it has condenser okay. and dynamics uh just a little inexpensive digital one which i've caught a lot of my stuff on zoom zoom four and, yeah. and various I, I i go for the high end do you ever stuff. use every th- uh, thermal thermal cameras I have not. I, I looked into purchasing one. Um, there's a lot of devil in the details as to how to really operate them. So a lot of those that have the thermals, um, if they don't really know what they're doing, they will pick up what I call false positives. And that can be true of ovuluses, which are these little... Um, no, the the ovulus are, are computer-generated words from, like, a box. They're, like, okay. programmed from anywhere from 500 words to 20,000. And, you know, somehow or another, a ghost is supposed to be able to go into a motherboard 
<laughs> and go through all the circuitry, look at all the ones and O's in order to find the word water. Yes, yeah, like and the other devices. Manipulate it. I mean, you really have to have a, wow. a degree, so you know, from coders. a trade school. Or to, there's that also screen, uh, they screen, you know, radio state, radio waves, radio yeah, stations. Yeah, those are ghost boxes that yeah. scan radio waves. See, these things are controversial to me, so right. I, I try to avoid them yeah, because they're, they're notorious for producing false positives. And. A lot of the ghost shows really use them a lot. And part of the reason why they do it is because they're so burned out, they don't want to stay all night. Right. And they don't want to listen to hours and hours and hours of just audio left alone in the room. So they can just do this, get their stuff, be lights out at 1230 in, in an editing bay. And who's to say that, you know, what they caught was incorrect or not? Right. I mean, most of the serious paranormal investigators will tell you that eh, ghost boxes stay away from it. it's for entertainment purposes every now and then something will come across that is hard to refute but a lot of it's just junk i yeah, mean it's, it's, it's like standing. a quick thrill it really is for them people that are thrill seeking and they want to hear something right because realistically in an investigation you can go hours it's not what you like you just what you see on tv you know you can go for hours three or four hours investigating you may not hear anything at all until you go back and do audio review and you're like oh shit you know, I heard something, you know, um, a clear yeah. voice. But uh, most of those, you know, those devices, you know, it's just scanning radio waves and you're like, you know, what's my name? Right. Most of the stations are AM. Most of the stations are AM. Yeah. And most AM are all Yeah. You're going to be able to pair You're going to be able to pair something up with what you asked, you know. And there is enough confirmable scientific study that, you know, we try to bring chaos out of order, disorder. Right. I mean, we try to bring order out of chaos. I said the exact opposite but uh um and so when we hear bits and pieces we we try to as, just subconsciously and consciously at the same time Simulated we're trying to, to assign or, meaning yeah. and to these blips and noises and sometimes when you get them back to back you know it will sound like it's forming a word or even a sentence however i will say that that there seems to be some exceptions to the rules where something will come out that come through that's loud and clear but those are very rare and even then i'm not sure that that should be admissible as proof that they work because most of the stuff we're talking like maybe 98 99 percent of every noise that comes from that is just what it is noise and you can get that in normal audio recording as well there's stuff that we've bounced back and forth with each other you'll say yeah. check your audio at this time so let me see what you've heard yeah and you know uh we both can't come to a conclusion, so we just toss it, you know, instead of saying, yeah, did you hear that whispering, being suggestive? Yeah. Um, you know, typically, that's, that's typically what we do. I mean, the other thing that I've noticed, too, in recording is sometimes, especially with Craig, when we met 10 years ago, we recorded yeah. at the uh, Aztec Hotel in Monrovia. And that's probably one of the most active places, one of my favorite places that, that we both investigated at. This, this is where we, we cut our teeth as yeah. paranormal investigators. And yeah. he, he captured a lot of stuff on video cam and audio recorders. And what I did notice is that what he picked up really loud by his recorder was really faint on mine. So one of the, the things that we came to believe is possibly these energies or these voices are coming in in certain areas of the room, you know. Because they're louder in certain recorders that were closer to that, and you guys were definitely in different locations of the oh, room yeah. where your recording devices. Oh yeah, were yeah. He had you know recorders of... laid out, and I'd send on one end, he'd send on the other. And when we went back to review, what sounded really you know uh, maybe muffled to me, he he you know his video cam came back with something that said, uh, "What was that female's voice that came through real clear?" 
Catherine. Yeah, Catherine. That was mind blowing. Yeah, mind blowing. I mean, it, it sounds was like clear a, someone right in the room talking. Female I mean, voice. No, no filtering. Not a whisper. Not no. anything like that. It was a voice that just said, "Catherine." Yet there were no females with right. us. That was in the basement night. of the Aztec Hotel. Yeah, but I've caught. I caught my probably the best EVP ever was in that hotel, uh, room one twenty which allegedly had the, the most activity, and uh, I was oh, recording in there. We, he actually did an experiment where he was playing like 19, Prohibition-style music in there for about an hour, and then I decided to go in there with a female investigator, and he went into another room with another investigator. And so I was sitting on the bed just asking questions. Now, mind you, he had posted up uh, some old photos of flapper girls, and he had his old hat on the bed. <laughs> yeah. So we're yeah. trying to stare up you know, possible energy. So I was sitting on the bed asking questions, and uh, all of a sudden I felt energetically, I felt like there was somebody else in the room. It kind of shifted. It just felt weird. So I stopped, mm-hmm. and I said, is there someone here? And then I said, you know what? I'm going to get off the bed and give you a chance to relax on the bed. And as I said that, I didn't hear this in real time, but I played my recorder back. I, I heard this man's voice sound like a voice from the 30s or 40s, and he says, I just want to go. Very clear. Just like that. In fact, I have that on YouTube. That's how clear oh, it is. Oh, dude. Yeah. And <laughs> it's my, it's mind-blowing. It, it really is because he said it right after I, I, uh, I asked the question, and it was as clear as day. Yeah, that, that was the one that got me interested the most in historical research of these places because the Aztec, there was no, no one really knew the real history of it. The old news, Monrovian newspapers were all on microfish, and no one was looking at it. This stuff was literally just sitting collecting dust or decomposing. And so I started going there for a few hours every day and just I, I photocopied every mention of the Aztec Hotel, and I was able to really put together a very uh, clear idea, very clear history of how that place uh, w- survived what the atmosphere was like in its first years and the failures, the economic failures, because it, uh, it it was not a, a, a hit by any means when it opened. It went mm. bankrupt within uh, the first couple of years, and and there were a lot of little telltale signs as to why the hotel had problems. And we were talking about the Aztec Hotel and. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I one of the one of the legends that has been said about the Aztec Hotel for for decades is that the the basement was a speakeasy during Prohibition at one time, and illegal card games uh, and prostitution possibly, uh, you know, was rife in the basement. Now the basement certainly was active. You know, we, we caught a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. I got a huge collection. <laughs> there's, there's no proof yeah. in the newspapers that, is, that a speakeasy ever existed there. However, there is circumstantial proof, evidence, that they were serving alcohol, especially at New Year's Eve parties, you know, because the, the, the newspaper would report how they had to turn people away. And no one drives in from Pasadena and Los Angeles to party at the Aztec Hotel in Monrovia if right. there's not going to have <laughs> right. alcohol. And no one's going to be partying till after 2 a.m. as the newspaper would report. So obviously something was going on in 1929 and, and possibly 1930, 1928, 29, and 30. Uh, by 1932, 1933, it had pretty much stopped making the news whatsoever so it had gone downhill so fast with the 
coming of the Great Depression, and they had split Route 66 into two. So the most of the travelers along Route 66 were going along Huntington Drive and not Foothill Boulevard. So it was dying off. They had already closed off their, their restaurants, and everything was just kind of fading away. That's also a good time for them to have had an illegal uh, speakeasy because you don't want a place that's going to attract a lot of attention. True. So this is kind of the window of when one would be. But I will tell you this. Uh, <laughs> one of the nights, I believe we were down there, um, there was only like three of us down in the basement. And while one's talking, I what, what I decided to do, and this was the smartest thing to do, and I tried to do it whenever possible, is bring multiple recorders. And if you're in a sizable space, Put them everywhere, in every room, as well as carry one on you. And that way, if you hear a sound on one recorder, you have an other recorders that you can listen to. And you sometimes you can say, okay, that's an outside noise, because one recorder will catch, will catch it. But uh, oftentimes, it will also tell you kind of where the area where this voice or sound came from. Well... I had a recorder in the old boiler room, and it took me a while to listen to it. It was a very deep male voice came through, and because I'm not a poker player, I couldn't make out what it was saying, but it sounded like one set of deuces, so I looked it up. One set of deuces? What is that? You know, And it was an opening to a poker hand, and I went, ah, maybe there is some truth to the speakeasy or the illegal card right, games right. when you get something like that. Now that that's where it uh, where EVPs make sense is when it does tie into a legend or it does tie into a uh, the dots connect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or it, or they're using archaic language. Just a few months ago, I led a, a paranormal investigation uh, at the Pierpont Inn in Ventura, California. And we were given access to this 1950s-era building that supposedly was haunted. And one of the owners had lived in this this building for a while. And I had heard about the stories about being haunted. But again, it's like I'm not impressed unless I catch something. Right. Well, I wasn't there, but uh, two, three people were. And all, they all had their recorders going. And they were talking about this former owner. And suddenly they got this whispered female voice saying, yap, yap, yap. And it's loud and clear. When, when they let me hear it, I was like, that's, that's what it sounds like to me, yap, yap, yap. And we started laughing because who uses yap, yap, yap anymore? You know, whenever people are talking or over-talking, they go blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. But no one uses yap, yap, yap. That's right. an archaic that's expression. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of times, so, you know, my next step would be let's look up when Yap 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 was, you know, kind of most prominent, most prominent. And uh, my guess, I haven't done that particularly yet because it's still a, a relatively fresh uh, EVP. But I was doing a photo shoot at the at Death Valley uh, Junction, the Amargosa Opera House. And there is clear as a bell, a voice, and it's traveling very fast. So it, it, it's almost like pinging loud and, and fades, like it is zooming through the room. Very strange. But it, I had one of my models dressed as kind of a, a prostitute, 
in there because there was a story of prostitution. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, this voice says really clear, Putain. And it zooms right through the room. And I went, Putain. So I looked it up. And <laughs> I mean, I knew, what, I knew what the other variation meant, yeah. okay? I knew what the other variation, I'm from Texas. I know what the other variation is. But I wanted to look up the history. And the word Putain itself uh, it go, it dates to around the Civil War. And it originated in kind of the New Orleans area. And yes, it is kind of a ruinization of French, but it means prostitute. Hmm. That's what the original me- meaning for putain was. And I'm trying very hard to pronounce that version of the word. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, but it's an archaic uh, American, you know, obviously the sound changed and so did the meaning. Uh, not by much, but it changed a little bit. But I thought, how interesting! You had a prostitute, uh, a model dressed as a prostitute, wandering around the dormitories, which supposedly had prostitution. Up. And then you had a voice calling out in French, archaic French, bastardized French, right. calling out a prostitute. Something that yeah. you couldn't have made up for a current time, exactly. based on an archaic terminology that was used yeah i don't think that's something that comes over like a cb radio you know and and really that whole area is so remote because it's on the edge of death valley that we couldn't even get cell phone reception um there were no towers around so these waves or audio waves that are you know supposedly are covering the world and you know from all different times and coming in um what are the odds of getting something that fits so well and kind of supports the history of the place? So you pretty much confirmed what's been going on there in, uh, a, in, a, in some type of it, it adds support. Yes. It adds support to the historical narrative. Yes, the now, real historical you narrative. You covered a lot of different uh, hotels, like Coronado, Alexandria, and Mission Inn. Um, me, personally, I have... I've been to Alexandria several times. I used to go to parties back in the day there. Um, did you experience anything there? That, yes. That's right in downtown LA. Yes. The, historically, the Alexandria is my favorite. I mean, from a history point of view, that place is amazing. And most people don't even know the history. Yeah. But that was when it, the first part of the building opened in 1906. Then they added to it an annex in 1911. But that was the first five-star hotel Los Angeles ever had. Mm. It also was the Plymouth Rock for the film industry. When they were moving east and coming to Los Angeles, looking for terrain, trying to take advantage of the weather, trying because there was a demand now to shoot films year-round for distribution. And most of these film companies were in New York, Chicago, definitely New Jersey, Fort Lee. And so the winters there were really harsh. So they were looking for a place to shoot year-round, especially the winter months. So in 1910, Mary Pickford, D.W. Griffith, uh, Max Sinnott, they all came, and it got the ball rolling. By 1915, 1917, that was the major social hub of the film industry. It also had a dark side. It was so wealthy and so ritzy. I think some people literally 
checked into the hotel to commit suicide just so they could make the news, you know. Hmm. Now, answer your question, yes. Um, that one was, I had a very wild experience shooting in the Valentino suite. Now, the Valentino suite's on the top floor of the 1911 Annex building. And it is relatively untouched since 1970 when it got this kind of Victorian uh, model. They put in Victorian, faux Victorian-era wallpaper. They put in reproduction Victorian furniture. And they named the suite in honor of Rudolph Valentino. It wasn't because Rudolph Valentino stayed in that room. No one knew what room Rudolph Valentino stayed in. So they just said, okay, we're going to make this one the Rudolph Valentino room. We'll put really blood red you know uh victorian wallpaper and everything's going to be really romantic lots of red and black you know something that you can just imagine valentino right Right. directly below was the charlie chaplin suite well charlie chaplin probably didn't stay there either because he stayed when he would stay he'd stay in different ones okay i digress let's get back up to the valentino suite um I rented that for a day. I came in at 10 in the morning, started uh, setting it up. It was a rat hole as a, of a place. I mean, um, there was no air conditioning, uh, like I said, virtually untouched from 1970. The once deep red red uh, carpet was petal bismol pink <laughs> from the sun and the heat, you know. And uh, one of the doors to the, this, this bathroom... Uh, we couldn't even close. Um, the 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 tile was warped from the heat, and so it was like mm-hmm. in a permanently half open position. So we tried to close it. And it was like, eh, let's not break the door. We'll just shoot around it. And there were lots of fruit flies because all the windows were open, and and so we had to fumigate. We brought in antiques. We set up the place, made it look really nice. Brought in a model, got her dressed up, um, and then it got dark. And once it got dark, it got really gloomy in this place. I mean, really gloomy. And I thought, well, rather than add a bunch of light to try to chase away the gloom, I decided, let's try to capture the gloom. You know, let's use it to our advantage. So I had the, the, the one model was in the red room, the red, flaming red wallpaper room. And she was dressed all in red. And uh, it was a Phantom of the Opera costume without the mask you know but she was red and in a red room and the leasing agent came in after work and uh he was being kind of a pain so i just said okay i'm going to give you the spotlight go into the next room which had gold wall wallpaper and just shine the light down this hallway on the model and uh but it was me really attempting to just get him out of the way you know and uh make him feel like he's important doing something but he's basically out of out of the way and not not flirting with the makeup woman or the whatever so we're in this room and we're shooting and suddenly i get this he the the leasing agent says uh do you mind hurrying up and getting the shot it's getting really cold and i'm getting scared back here it's getting cold and I was like, yeah, yeah, I've almost got it. I've almost got it. Give me five, ten minutes. So about that time had passed. And suddenly, bam, really loud, that door that had been, I thought, permanently wedged open had slammed shut. 
and it slammed shut with such force that all of the glass in this 1911 suite rattled. And we all jumped, and the uh, I'll never forget hearing that scream coming from the leasing agent. He screamed. <laughs> that that light he was holding was bouncing all over the walls and everything <laughs> from him shaking. And I had to get everyone to calm down and uh and while trying to be, you know, calm myself. Right. Um we all were, you know, peeling ourselves off of the ceiling because we weren't expecting that. And once I got everyone kinda calmed down, we snapped the picture, then we went back and and investigated that bathroom and you know once again i pushed that door open until it got stuck and i got it stuck really well and it took about 90 percent of my arm strength to unwedge it again so that was not just a cross breeze draft besides it was a windowless bathroom and it wasn't part of the the wind tunnel that was blowing through there so that made us all believers that something was there. I mean, seven of us were present, and we all, we none of us ever saw the door slam, but we heard it. And there was no way that the leasing agent could have done it from where his position was because he was too far away. Plus the fact that no one screams <laughs> like that. <laughs> he was unless it, unless he it, was unless scared. it's the real deal. Right. So yeah, that that's my my best story. <laughs> but there, but there are. That sounds pretty damn good too. But there's, uh, the, the, there have been other instances. You know, I've spoken. A, there's a new uh, restaurant bar that opened. It's a recreation of a pre-prohibition. The one downstairs, bar. right? Wol- the Wolves, yeah. yeah. And uh, they've had me speak there a couple of times about the history of the Alexandria. It's really nice because like huge crowds turn out. I mean, I had a, a line of people almost to the last bookstore just waiting to and i had to do three back-to-back presentations because people were genuinely interested in the ghost stories and the real history of the the alexandria but what's interesting is that the wolves also is now having paranormal activity there he stirred it up (laughs) you woke it up yeah in fact in fact i'm gonna walk you around here (laughs) oh yeah we gotta talk about this place definitely this place has has its own its own uh, heart um I've had an experience here after our St. John's Feast, which is coming up, by the way, on the 22nd. Um, we were, you know, I was hanging out here. We got a little drunk. Um, I, I needed a knockout, knocked out right here. And <laughs> the lodge is right there. It's right next door. Okay. And I'm hearing, so you're well, walking away. Footsteps walking away. And I had away. two of my brothers, you know, knocked out with me. But I'm like, nah, just whatever. And then I heard it again. And. You know how you had that, that idea? You know, let me go check it out. I was the complete opposite. I go, I'm just going to close my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> close it's not happening. It's not happening. It's not even here. Uh-huh. And, and I let it go. But ever since, I've been, I've been very curious because I've always felt something. And it's not bad. It's not like yeah. something malevolent or something, you, you, but I know that there's it's probably a brother, you know, just yeah. hanging out. Most hauntings are not negative, And that's what I try to convey it's it's a piece of history. It's yeah. it's it's an it's, it's a, like a, a stuck a piece of programming that's just stuck there. It's like a, yeah. Sometimes yeah. a film that replays itself. Sometimes yeah, depending every, if it's residual or if it's a uh, you know. Every now and then there'll be something that will you know make you think. Well, that wasn't too nice, but uh, you know I've yet to come across anything that I would uh, consider demonic. Uh, I think and that hopefully you don't. 
<laughs> yeah, hopefully I don't yeah. either. I mean, I think it's it's so rare, and I, I always tell people it's like be careful of of ghost hunting shows and paranormal groups that jump to that conclusion. I mean, how would you feel if you went to a dentist because you have a toothache, and he goes, "Well, let me take a look," and he goes, "Oh, cancer," when it's really just a cavity, you right. know? So it should never be a first conclusion or you know a first guess it should be after you've eliminated everything else and and or there's very certain uh very specific uh bad things but even you know the the scratch with the three that people sometimes have i mean that might even be mischaracterized i mean we we tend to jump to so many conclusions, conclusions. well i always based tell on people so little information yeah i always tell people you know why does it why does it have to be demonic How, what if it was the spirit of someone who died in a place that you're re- residing in and maybe you're in their space they they feel you're intruding and maybe they're right. very aggressive that way you know they're very physical you know like right. this is someone who they went. You mean the scratch could have been from something like that? You know, just keeping your mind open about it because it, everyone always resorts to demonic. Not that it, that it can be or it's not, but it's just right. thinking of the fact that if it was. I'm not saying that it know, doesn't exist. Right. I'm just saying that uh, uh, you know I'm going to assume that it doesn't until I encounter it. But I'll be just like with shadow people. Once that happens, I'll just re- I'll just until add it you, to the. You right. actually experience it. With I'll come around. Eyes, I'll you know? come around. That's what it is. Well, I know if I, I if I pass and I stuck around, you know, I'm a prankster. I know that I would be scaring shit out of people <laughs> here and there. And you know, just for the hell of it. <laughs> I know from my personal experiences with with some type of paranormal or external energies. Um, it for me, it's usually a positive or a negative. It's not so much a demonic versus an angelic, right, but right. A, a, you know, like all of my experiences here at the lodge have always been very positive energy feeling. Nothing that is in any way, shape, or form negative. Yet I've been in places where mm. there was a very negative energy there, and Absolutely. I and and I, it 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 just. It, it caused me to be, it, it, you feel the difference yeah. and it caused me to take a different stance, to yeah. be more guarded, to be, to know that there's something there that's definitely not necessarily for my benefit. So I need right. to watch out and, and I felt, guard I myself. I felt the same thing, same place. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this is the part where we got to wrap up. Um, thank you guys for being on the show. I appreciate sure. it. Thank you for having um, us. Craig, where can we find your book? You can find the book on Amazon. Uh, you can also, if you want like a signed copy, um, you can go to my website, bizarrela.com, and uh, that should, should do it. That's B-I-Z-A-R-R-E-L-A.com. And uh, you can also find me on Instagram as well. Awesome. What's your what's your tag on Instagram? That would be bizarre underscore loss underscore Angelus. Angelus. Yeah. All right. And Paul, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Team Griff. If you, if anyone's interested in finding out more information about uh, Reiki, um, my longtime mentor, she she teaches throughout the year uh, classes and. Uh, like I said, I think we're going to start doing what we call Reiki shares or meetups for people that are interested or just kind of curious just to find out more about it before getting involved in it. So, uh, yeah, people can reach out to me at Team Griff. 
Awesome. Yeah. Well, I just want to go over some closing remarks and um, our shout outs. Shout outs. Uh, well, first of all, we have our St. John's Feast on the 22nd. Um, it's going to be a nice production going on there. Hopefully, you all can make it. Um, SanPedroMasons.org. That's where you get your ticket under events. Um, the Masonic Con's coming up in, in um, Esotericon. That oh, Masonicon, and, and then Esotericon, gotcha. Masonicon coming up in South Pasadena, uh, I believe, in July. Yep. And then we have our own Esotericon here um, in September. So we got a lot going on. Uh, Keepersoftheword.net. Uh, that's where we have all our information. You can follow up with with our episodes and um, our check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe, like, share, and we thank you for your support.